This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 367, August the 2nd, 1996. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I will be discussing, first of all, the subject of resentment, hostility, uh, the suppressed feelings of hatred, revenge, envy, and the like. An important study was made early in this century by the German philosopher Max Scheler, S-C-H-E-L-E-R, 1874 to 1928 are his dates. A thoroughly remarkable man. He was born in Munich of a, a, a German Jewish family, was on the whole very close to Christianity and was within the Christian community off and on, Catholic and Protestant. But this work was the most perceptive one that uh, is his classic. It was last printed in English in 1961, to my knowledge. Perhaps there is a more recent printing. But Max Scheler wrote Resentiment, R-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-M-E-N-T, very similar to our English word resentment. The work is a classic precisely because he very, very ably put his finger on a major current in the modern world. To understand what he meant by the term, let us see how he defines it. And I quote, Raisonnement denotes an attitude which arises from a cumulative repression of feelings of hatred, revenge, envy, and the like. When such feelings can be acted out, no raisonnement results. But when a person is unable to release these feelings against the persons or groups evoking them, thus developing a sense of impotence, and when these feelings are continuously re-experienced over time, then raisonnement arises. Raisonnement leads to a tendency to degrade, to reduce genuine values as well as their hearers, or bearers rather. As distinct from rebellion, raisonnement does not lead to an affirmation of counter-values since raisonnement imbued persons secretly crave the values they publicly denounce, unquote. The word raisonnement is French, although Scheler was a German writing in German. Now, the word as he defines it is a bit narrower than we're going to uh, more narrow than we're going to consider. We will take it from the English term resentment, 
hostility, suppressed feelings of anger and rage against other people in society. Sheeler is quite apt in tracing it to the French Revolution and the universal love of all mankind that was professed and to the idea of equality. If you educate people, as our schools are doing and as schools everywhere are doing, to the belief that everyone is equal, then if you find that you're not equal to others, you're going to be a very resentful person. Somehow you are being cheated of those things which are your right to have. And the result is explosive. It's amazing how people with little or no talent and who will not study nor learn nor cultivate any ability that they have are full of hostility because what's the use? They're going to be cheated by the establishment or by the people who control things. Now, one of the worst notions that has ever plagued mankind is the idea of equality. People are not equal. They're different. And when the Bible uses equality, it uses it in a different sense and to apply only to the fact that God's grace is the same to all that God saves all of us by grace equally, that we contribute nothing to it. So there, the idea of equality eliminates merit on our part. We are equally objects of God's grace. But the idea current in Western culture of equality has overwhelmed the other notions of the French Revolution and has become the governing factor of the world over in one culture after another. But we're created differently, not equally. There is an equality between two quarts of milk and another two quarts of milk but not between two people on one side and two people on the other. Some of us are very talented in one or two things. Others, like Douglas here, are so multi-talented, there are not many things he can't tackle. We're different. That's the work of God. But a culture that stresses equality is headed for explosions because you cannot teach people that they are equal without them demanding that everything be equalized and that's impossible well with that introduction Douglas do you want to continue well I, the uh, political opportunism is one thing that jumps into my mind as <clears throat> being a fertile ground for the exploitation of uh, class resentment 
and it's a you know it's an old uh, strategy uh, of divide and conquer. It's been used for centuries, and uh, uh, as a uh, as a political tool and a weapon to divide people. Uh, today we have division. We have resentment that has been exploited by. Um, Virtually every group in society has been pitted against each other. Uh, we have intergenerational resentment. Uh, the politicians continue to exploit it by telling the younger generation that they're going to have to pay 80% of everything they make to support the people on uh, uh, Social Security, yet the politicians are the ones that created the Social Security monster in the first place and have got everybody addicted to it. And um, so they have this, they, they, they build up this resentment. We've got uh, uh, the exploitation of race, racial resentment, economic resentment, uh, intergenerational resentment, you name it, it's been exploited. And we have, a, uh, although the politicians say everybody is uh, equal, yet they, they strive to uh, uh, exploit the, the differences. Uh, rather than than allow people to acclimatize themselves to the differences and adjust to them and get on with their lives, uh, it, it creates vendettas. Uh, we now are seeing the rise uh, in the Islamic world of a, a vendetta against Christianity, and it's beginning to play itself out in uh, in various forms. And uh, it's going to be a growing problem. Uh, many of the Islamics themselves don't understand why uh, Christians have abandoned their faith. And, uh, uh, but they are going to exploit the weakness. And uh, even among the Christian, uh, Christian world, there is resentment among religions. And uh, there is resentment everywhere. It permeates our culture. It permeates the entire the entire world, and it's uh, standing in the way of uh, uh, the advancement of mankind. Well, you can begin by saying that uh, inferior individuals resent and wish to punish superior individuals. Poor individuals resent and wish to punish. Rich individuals, non-Christian individuals resent and wish to punish Christian individuals, and we could go on down the line. And if they can get the power of civil government in their hands to do that, they will do it. And that's specifically what has happened in this country, especially over the last oh, 50 or 100 years. If any of these groups that feel somehow disenfranchised because they don't feel equal, uh, if they can get political power in their hands, they'll use that power to equalize things. Do you think that <clears throat> do you think that this resentment arises from a feeling of superiority or inferiority? I think it's a feeling of superior of uh, inferiority that they feel down deep in their bosom. But as Rush pointed out, they have been told that they are entitled to certain things or to a certain acceptance in society, as the case may be and therefore they feel they should have it by right. That really is a thoroughly corrupt word as it is used in that concept of rights. It's not really a biblical word uh, as used in the modern sense, probably derived from the French Revolution or not long 
after that, at least in that, at least in the modern sense. So uh, they, uh, these individuals feel that they have certain rights that they're entitled to, and usually they want to get centralized civil government in their hands to guarantee those rights and punish people that tend to be uh, wealthier or intellectually superior or owning more land or uh, have the political franchise or that sort of thing. This has happened, of course, for uh, almost as long as, as long as sin has been in the world, but especially as it intensified in the last couple of hundred years on a secular basis deriving from the French Revolution. Well, we have the seeds of it in the United States today, and the seeds are blossoming more and more. It's a very sad, sad phenomenon. I think resentment can work the, the other way, too. Resentment can, can be from the supposedly superior to the inferior. Um, good example of that is intellectuals, artists. They like being different. They like the fact that most people don't understand what in the world this painting conveys. And they like talking, sometimes scholars, in scholarly terms or um, using a terminology that leaves most people in the dust. Professionals such as educators create their own lingo so most people can't understand what it is they're actually saying when they write articles for other educators. Uh, every discipline has its own lingo and it becomes almost a, a legalese, only it's not just in the legal sphere, it's in many different spheres. Um, well, I think that's more derision than resentment, wouldn't you think? Or? Yeah, but does this create resentment because of the failure to communicate or because people feel that they're being talked down to? Or I think there's a resentment for the common man among some people. We all, we all, we have a, the first sin, remember, was to, to play God. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And men like to play God. And men with intelligence sometimes like to think that they're God and that the common man shouldn't be able to understand them or decipher them. They should be a cut apart. And well, all of the professions are guilty of this. The medical right. profession, the legal profession, uh, judges, uh, all of these people that you know have gotten good educations uh, seem to revel in the ability to use terminology that the common man doesn't understand. I think the problem on both sides is that they refuse to rec recognize each other's gifts and callings. I mean, the people that are called common ought to recognize that, well, I know a man that uh, repairs cars knows a great deal more than I do. I know virtually nothing about automobiles. I may know more about theology or philosophy. We ought to recognize those mm -hmm. differences. But uh, And on the other hand, people that are very gifted in a particular area, whether it's in repairing cars or uh, teaching philosophy, uh, ought not to deride those that are that don't have that gift. I think there has to be an understanding of differences of gifts there. Mm -hmm. Well, that you're using the illustration uh, of the New Testament about their different, you know, yes, in the church body, the church, and it has many different parts. That's right. And it doesn't work always that well in a church. That's right. And in the the, the secular sphere that doesn't even pretend to be godly, there's even more of a hard time recognizing that the need for others and appreciating that the skills and, and the contributions of others. I think the, the greatest thing is to appreciate people who strive to do a job well, Amen. regardless of what that job Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Uh, you yeah. know, how many times have you heard people cry out in desperation, if I could only find a good plumber? Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, it, it, in some areas of plumbing, it's not the most glamorous job, but it's a very vital. Well, the Puritan work ethic really came from the concept, as I understand it, of the priesthood of all believers, that all yes. men uh, could serve God in their given calling, mm -hmm. and therefore uh, a common laborer or a farmer who was doing what he was doing in a moral way into the glory of God was a worker for God, just as was a member of the clergy. And this created a value to work, and you, there was a dignity in your work and a dignity in your calling that didn't necessitate a resentment or a jealousy of others. This, this idea, though, is not something that is taught in the, the public school system. I think it's probably only taught in Christian schools. Public mm -hmm. schools don't teach that. You know, it's get the big education, get the big bucks, and leave everybody else in the dust. That's right. Well, Puritan society, we have to remember, Marx is right, but Puritan society was not an egalitarian society by far. So we need to we need to remember that. There are all sorts of differences and different classes and uh, social spheres, but they can all work together if there's... Uh, a godly understanding, a sensible understanding of, of differences, of, of inherent God-given differences. Uh, there doesn't have to be fighting and arguing and bickering over the matter. Unfortunately, intellectuals can tend to feel inherently superior. Politicians especially can feel superior, especially when they have power. I noticed appreciating the differences of others and recognizing that sometimes differences are necessary. I've noticed... Um, a lot of the marriage and interpersonal type counseling uh, things, which are always very popular in talk shows and, and you know top ten you know books and so forth and seminars, a lot of them are focusing now on the, the inherent differences between men and women. Brilliant deduction, Watson. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> well. For a lot of time, there was this this idea that you know there wasn't the differences. Now they're recognizing that there really are differences, and and they have they use different analogies. And one has said you know men are from Mars and women are from Venus, and they use different analogies, but they they have finally come around to the point where women are different, and men have to realize that women think differently if they're ever yes. going to understand women, and women have different needs, yes. and they perceive their needs differently than the man perceives, and they finally recognize that, and it's uh, it, it's very interesting, and it's very almost biblical without using biblical terms. What they don't come around says is God; they're different because yes. God made them different, and God made them for a particular purpose, and they both contribute to the relationship. Mark, I've got to add this: it was about six months or a year ago. <laughs> One of the networks says. Friday, we're going to talk about new studies indicate that women are different from men. And I said, it took them that long to figure that out. Uh, that's, that's precisely, I mean, people are at war with God's order, the created order, and therefore they tend to gloss over those differences, and they tend, especially, of course, feminists in modern culture and others. Tend well, to the, 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 the whole reason that the media makes those kinds of pronouncements so that they can appear to be the first one on the scene yeah. to find this out. They want to be the oracle of information. They want to be the Bible. Yeah, that's the exactly media, right. The media wants to be the Bible. Well, I think we, when Rush was talking about resentment, I think that we can eliminate a lot of that resentment if we do recognize those differences. Mark brought up the case of uh, sex called gender today. Um, 
I think if, if people recognize that men are not inherently superior to women, they're different from women, they have different roles, in some ways women are far superior to men in their particular calling. And the same is true of, of men in their particular calling. But I think what's true uh, in the relationship between men and women is also true in all of these other things that we're talking about. If I may go back to Sheeler's book, he makes an interesting observation, and I quote, Universal love of mankind becomes progressively more powerful until the French Revolution, when one head after another was struck off in the name of mankind. That's right. Unquote. Now, that's a very apt observation. If you have a false value, you're going to be a hypocrite. And if you believe that uh, you love everybody and that's a mark of your political party or your group or your intellectual uh, co-equals, then you are going to show a hostility for other reasons. That's right. Towards those you resent because you are not going to eliminate your hostility and resentment. You're going to be veiled about it, and particularly ugly. Well, our, our esteemed president had the FBI arrest uh, a group of young girls who made an unkind remark yes, uh, I heard at about one of that. his recent uh, speeches, and um, so much for uh, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. and uh, all the rest of it. Oh, I like the adage, you know, liberals love humanity but hate humans. I mean, that's the whole point. It's very abstract. I think it wasn't Edmund Morgan that wrote the book Inventing the People. Um, virtually every totalitarian regime over the last 250 years has always claimed to speak in the name of the people and to be very universal and to love humanity. But that really is a guise. What they really love is the particular kind of humanity uh, that they believe in, and Rousseau was that way. I was just reading, I can't remember whether it was his, um, one of the works, I can't recall off the top of my head, in which he's essentially saying that. We should speak in the name of the people to get across our particular little provincial agenda. That's what he was really saying. Well, we could go a long way towards solving uh, mankind's problems if we could get two things done. Get the Ten Commandments on the wall of every school and home in the world, and uh, teach people to evaluate human behavior uh, from the perspective of the seven deadly sins. Evaluate everything that that people do. Douglas, you're arguing for an objective moral standard, you see, and that's not not acceptable in today's uh, society. Well, it's an answer. <laughs> what is it Vanto used to say that uh, we don't have a right mm-hmm. to say that only I have a right to say what I mm-hmm. something like that, you know. Everything is relative except for my own view. That's the argument that so yeah, many people have. You know, people are perplexed, you know, what do we do about this jam that we're in? I mean, let's face it. <clears throat> the, you know, this world is in a uh, 
is in a, uh, a somewhat uh, a downward spiral uh, morally. You know, all of the political leaders keep wringing their hands about well. the rending of the moral fabric of the country, but there's none of them seem to have an answer for it. They, well. they, they avoid the only answer that's going to work. The only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ and obedience to the law, word of God, in all spheres of life. <clears throat> and, of course, they'll always have uh, political solutions. And we as Christian Reconstructionists are, are often misrepresented. We don't believe in ultimate political solutions. We believe in biblical solutions, Christian solutions that have implications for politics. But that's the only hope for mankind. And that the Bible is very clear in that. Trust in Christ alone by faith for salvation and self-government, as Russia said, and family government, church government, and, and state government. But who in Congress or anywhere else wants to hear that message? I mean, yeah. You know. Well, they don't want to, you know, give up the prerogative of uh, uh, being playing God and being the ultimate problem That's solver right. for the people. That's right. Uh, at, at some point, I hope to see in my life uh, probably a <coughs> vain <coughs> uh, uh, hope, but uh, I would just like to see some glimmer of realization on the part of the of people in this country at least that government is not the answer that it's the problem that there is no solution that government has ever come up with that has ever solved any problem you always get more of the problem with every solution they come up with I think we may be seeing a little glimmer not as much as we would like but I mean most honest people recognize the demise of the great society and the new deal and all of that uh, economic evil and economic blasphemy um, I'm hoping people realize the need for decentralization. I think there's a little of that on the horizon, but it's still ingrained in people. I mean, especially my generation and the younger one, and even the generation a, li a little older. I mean, um, it's evil, and it's going to take a while to turn it around, probably. Well, there is uh, an expression that Max uh, Scheler used to describe this feeling, and it was this, the stifling feeling of impotence. Yes. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. Someone has observed that if you go back to the 30s, to the Great Depression, the thing that is notably absent is anxiety. If ever a people had mm -hmm. cause to be anxious... <laughs> That was the time. Mm -hmm. They didn't have jobs. They, their power was often turned off. The uh, great uh, dust bowl continued year after year. Those were difficult times. And yet America never laughed more. And there was no uh, feeling of impotence. They were going to make it somehow. They had that feeling. But now everybody feels impotent when they're well off, they're driving good cars, they have uh, more than their parents ever dreamed of having, but somehow life is cheating them. What are they dreaming about? What do they imagine that they can have or should have that makes them feel so impotent? It's an interesting aspect of our time. Well, the the um, you know one of the indicators is that uh, we have a growing 
uh, suicide rate among teenagers. Now, kids are pretty perceptive uh, for, yes. for one reason or another. They seem to have uh, no hope. That's right. I think that uh, this impotence uh, grows out of having no hope, and uh, people who have no hope have no faith. I mean, it's That's a logical right. progression Absolutely. from no faith to no hope to impotence to uh, resentment. Well, if you get rid of God, there's only chance. And if there's... If you live by chance, then there is ultimately no hope. And I think that's one reason there's a difference, Rush, that you were talking about. At least there was a residue, as you know, in the 30s of a belief in God and predestination. Maybe not in a theological, sophisticated sense, but a residue of it. But that's largely gone today. We just don't live in a relativistic culture, so everything springs from the womb of chance. So there is no hope. Man has to make his own. Well, too many people gave up faith. They traded faith for the New Deal and the that what became the, their the new promises of, yes. of socialism. Yeah, and now that that's failed, mm -hmm. they have nothing else to bank on. Well, this feeling of impotence is so much a part of our time that uh, we've lost a sense of reality. The movie uh, heroes, the television heroes, are not normal people meeting the problems of life realistically and uh, with patience, but they're impossible people. They go out and uh, wipe out an army. They solve all problems miraculously. We've lost touch with reality, and that is a kind of impotence. They believe in instant solutions. Instant solutions, yes. It was back in the 60s when I was traveling that I encountered something that since then I have encountered more than a few times and heard about a great many times. I was speaking in this one place, and this pastor, a rather successful man, was telling me about a very close friend who had suddenly flared up at him, quarreled, and for no reason at all, except he blurted out something about, uh, you think you're good because... You've got uh, a big, successful work going on here. In other words, envy. And I cannot begin to uh, recall all the times I've heard about that, not only among the clergy, but among people generally. Some friend with no problem between them for no reason, flares out angrily, is very hostile, and what comes out in one statement or another, how dare you be more successful than I am? And that's the gist of it. And there's a, a shocking amount of that going on in our time. So much so that uh, on one occasion, I was in one city, and this uh, 
businessman, very successful, who was a devout man, things he had done for the community and for Christian causes were so numerous that you realize this man was putting most of his income into being a Christian, helping others. I would say, having visited in his home, uh, that uh, he obviously lived more modestly than any of us here around this table. He was very dedicated in his faith. And apart from making sure that his children and grandchildren would be reasonably well taken care of and his wife, if he were to leave her a widow, this was his life. And yet what bewildered him was the resentment of others. They resented him because he was so successful. They resented him because he was such a good Christian. They resented him for everything. And he said in bewilderment, I can't seem to do anything right as far as these people are concerned. Now, this is all too true in our time. Right. And uh, I can vouch for the fact that uh, I've experienced a few episodes of that sort. And... Uh, Some people assume that because we uh, have a worldwide organization and influence, somehow we have a major center here. Well, that doesn't surprise me because I've seen groups, when they start up, spend all their money for a long, long time and doing nothing but building up a headquarters, a large suite of offices, secretaries, everything. All we have are two girls part-time, half a day each, a tiny cramped office, and yet uh, when some of these people who have built up things and are not accomplishing much, are told that, they only get angrier. They're only resentful. And this is a, so much a part of our culture today, resentment that others are doing better in some sense or are having more of an impact or are enjoying their work and life more than they are. Well, that in itself is an insult to them. It starts very early. Uh, you know, you've got sibling rivalries and, and families. Uh, if it's not guarded against, uh, you've got uh, conflicts in the classroom where uh, some of the kids are a little quicker to understand uh, than others. And uh, the ones that are not as quick will pick on the ones who are quick. And uh, so kids get the, you know, it's, a, it's almost a pecking order very, very early if there's no one around to, to uh, alleviate that. 
Don't you think all of this ultimately derives from hatred for God's predestinating hand, that God has a right to make people different? He has a right to deal with people as he will. Russ, you were talking about those that have resented you and Chalcedon. Uh, of course, people that hate predestination, that hate that God has his own right, if I can use that word, to choose, what does he say in Scripture? He is the potter and we are the clay. Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, why have you made me like this? Well, they think God should be an egalitarian, don't they? Yes. Well, look at the, uh, you know, the... the all men are created equal and everybody assumes that that means that they should all have the same amount of money no that's not the same what Jefferson amount of social meant. status that's right. you know rather than understanding that all men you know in this country have the same responsibility that's to right. you know maintain uh, uh, a watchful eye over civil government they uh, immediately assume that it was uh, you know, everybody should have their hand in the public so treasury. So-called economic justice. Yeah, yes. economic justice, et cetera, social justice, yeah. and all the other uh, things that have turned out to be an absolute tyranny. Right. Well, I was uh, an adult before I ever heard of sibling rivalry and about the terrible things done by parents preferring one child over another. It never occurred to us uh, that there might be a preference on the part of our folks. We didn't uh, think that way or question anything they did. See all of these problems you avoided because you weren't so smart? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I can recall when I was of age, I occasionally heard from uh, uh, someone or other of cases where a child or a young person in their teens was picking up this new language. And uh, when they would whine to their parents, you prefer him or her over me, uh, the answer was, and why not? You're such a stinker, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah. So they were put in their place. Mm -hmm. But uh, since the war, it's become uh, progressively... Uh, a deep psychological problem and uh, you're entitled to feel resentful because you are not preferred over your brother or sister no matter what you did. Yeah, but don't you think these psychological terms have simply become control mechanisms? That yes. These credential frauds yes, oh, of course. used to, uh, you know, to maintain power over people. That reminds me of what you said, though, Rush. You wrote one time, must have been years ago, on the heresy of unconditional love, that parents, yes. you know, ought to love all alike, and it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. any child does or anybody does. Uh, of course, that's a part of the, the modern so-called Christian psyche as well as the psychological jargon. But Douglas, you're certainly right. I think they just sort of invent jargon to suit their purposes to control people. For some of these Christian call-in programs, some of you may be aware of the psychologists, and it's amazing all these little buzzwords they use. And these women and men feel so important now that they have they're diagnosed with this psychological yeah. problem. You know, it's, well, it's something <coughs> cocktail talk. That, exactly. Yes. Sheila at one point used an excellent uh, phrase to describe this mentality. He called it a self. Poisoning of the mind. Mm. A self poisoning yeah. of the mind. 
And I think that self-poisoning marks our time. I know any a number of people who uh, would like to have their pastor take time to talk with them or who would like to have me when I go in that area to talk to them about their problem. And I know it's useless because it's a self-poisoning of the mind that is their problem. They nurse certain feelings of resentment. They build it up until it's consuming their being. All they can think of day and night are these feelings they're nursing and they're poisoning themselves in the process. Not only are they doing it, but they apparently enjoy doing it. There's a perversity in their attitude so that uh, the self-poisoning becomes a virtue. Their attitude is, I do well to be angry, as though there were a virtue in their uh, rage. And they become deeply cynical, too, and very vindictive. I've met people like that. One thing he thinks immediately of Cain in the Bible, perhaps the first yes. example of this. Yes. Um, and it is self-destructive behavior because if it's not caught and repented of, then it does tend to destroy the individual. It just destroys his effectiveness and all that he does. So yes. it's it's when it's, you center on yourself, the world all usually doesn't comply. That's right. And you become upset and and. We're in a very materialistic age, and so a lot of envy centers around what I don't have and what's, or stuff, yeah. what somebody else has. And, of course, socialism is just uh, Marxism and the lesser forms mm-hmm. of socialism mm-hmm. that are prevalent in our culture today and, and encourage this. And if somebody's you know, <coughs> trying to climb this materialistic ladder, suddenly you know, they, they realize that I can't keep up. I'm Mr. Rung, or I, I, I'm lacking a skill. I'm not going to make it any farther. Um, this resentment build, you know, builds up. Um, and so I think a lot of resentment today does center because we are in a very socialistic age, mm-hmm. more than we really recognize. And I think that um, I, I, I keep remembering things that I've heard of from several different people who lived through the Depression something to the effect that we weren't self-conscious about being poor because everybody was in the same boat. You know, materialism kind of Mm -hmm. was put on hold for a while Mm -hmm. because, and you didn't need to feel bad about your state or feel self-conscious because everybody else was in the same state. Well, we have consumerism. Our form of this is consumerism. You know, people feel compelled to go buy stuff they don't need. You know, Mm -hmm. you drive down the street and see all these garage sales and yard sales and... They're just full of junk. I mean, absolute junk that people shouldn't have wasted their money on in the first place. I, I, I call these little catalogs that come in the mail of the knick-knack stuff. Oh, yeah. I call it, I call it um, buying yard sales stuff at retail. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, it, it's, it amazes me how some people enjoy buying this junk, which you, you can, I can just visualize it on a table of dirty yard sale stuff and it's you know it's it's worthless useless junk but and people buy this stuff my uh, uncle who's dead now we we went through uh, 
in Sausalito years and years ago, they had a great big boat there that they turned into a store, and they had all this import stuff. It wasn't too long, you know, after World War II, and it was all this stuff like you're talking about, you know, little baskets and, you know, just knick-knack stuff. And <laughs> I took him to lunch, and after we went through this boat, he, was, he didn't never said a thing the whole time as we were walking off the boat. He says, I never saw so many things I didn't need. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this feeling of resentment is building up in our time. Uh, Sheeler made clear that the only antidote to it historically has been Christianity. Because the Christian emphasis is in whatsoever state we are therewith to be content mm -hmm. and that's a hard lesson for many people to learn that's right and it takes uh, really uh, some generations of uh, Christian faith to overcome uh, the kind of perpetual discontent that marks the world because people outside of Christ are discontented and they, in a sense, relish their discontent. They see it in some instances as a mark of a divine discontent, someone called it, and the fuel for progress. But it isn't. It isn't anything that leads people to advance themselves or develop things or contribute right. to civilization but rather it's a perpetual resentment because you don't have what others have I think that is very much with us would it be fair to say that socialism is essentially a resentment culture I mean that's yes, it's fueled very on, well put. it's fueled on resentment is it not I yes. mean, uh, that's how politicians are able to you know, equalize everything, which is to say, steal from some. Um, they're voted into power by people who are governed by resentment, I would think. At least envy. Uh, that is true of the left and right today in most mm -hmm. countries. The left uh, makes resentment of those who are successful uh, its selling card. Whereas the right tends to make resentment of uh, those who are not successful uh, a ground for doing something to these people, hostility to them. Whereas Christianity teaches contentment plus reaching out to everyone rich, rich or poor yes, alike that's right. with the faith, Amen. Uh, the gospel. And biblical law is clear on that in, in protecting uh, those that are less fortunate, not by redistribution of civil government, but by godly charity in the family yes. and the church and so forth. And biblical law makes it mandatory that we be not partial to the rich because they are rich or hostile to the poor Precisely. because they are poor. Resentment can work both ways, as yes. Mark observed earlier. That's right. Andrew, let me put you on the spot. For somebody who wakes up tomorrow morning feeling resentful or vindictive 
or uh, feels they've got an axe to grind, what practical steps, if they don't want to go through another day of that burden, what practical steps can they start with to unburden themselves? Got to recognize it's sin, first of all, and not try to psychologize it, you know, and explain why it is. We can always find good reasons, you know, to rationalize why we are the way we are. And second of all, I think, is to recognize the predestinating hand of God, that God puts us in particular situations, that he is in control. I've got to recommend Rush's writing, By What Standard, um, the little appendix. I think the appendix itself is called By What Standard. Is it not, Rush? Mm-hmm. Dealing with Job. He points out there that the final lesson that Job had to learn is that man must live in terms of God. God does not live and exist in terms of man. That's the great lesson of the entire universe. I think if people understood that, a great deal of resentment would be gone. That uh, we are here for God's purposes. God does not exist for our purposes. And those difficult things that we endure and uh, that we go through, God has a reason for them. I think if people recognize that, then that's going to go a great deal toward getting rid of a lot of their resentment. God can do what he wants to with so-and-so over here. That's not our business. We're, supp- we're called, we're called. Ecclesiastes 12 says, to faith and obedience. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Now, of course, that's easier said than done, you, you ask me. But I think that's what we have to recognize, and that'll solve the problem, I believe. At least go towards solving the problem, contribute towards it. One of the things Sheeler says in his book is that ideas do have consequences, that uh, if you begin with a mechanistic or a biological explanation of things, of life, for example, you are going to reduce all life to that. As he says, biological theory reduces them all, every aspect of life, uh, to the criterion of utility. In other words, survival of the fittest, vestigial organs, getting rid of things that are not useful, and so on. And so, he goes on to say, thus the practice of life is closely connected with theory. The theory seems to justify the practice, but in reality it is determined by the same shift in values. This view of life, materialistic and biological, has more or less conquered the civilized world and has come to be dominant chiefly in England. Well, he wrote this when England was at the height of its power. And he saw this type of reduction of life to biology as fatal to a society because the practice of life is closely connected with the theory. If our practice of life is a Christian one, then it follows that Christian results will be forthcoming. But if they are biological and Darwinian, the results will be deadly. And, of course, this is what we are seeing. In this sense, Max Scheler was prophetic in this study of Rosentimon. Hmm. 
There's not much to add to that. That's precisely correct. This means then, to turn to a more positive note, or first negatively, there will be no recovery unless we sweep the intellectual grounds clear of all the false uh, ideas about life and the world. And positively, as we have more and more homeschooling and Christian schooling and Christian reconstruction, we are going to restore the proper perspective. We will eliminate resentment. We will create a culture in which men seek the approval of God by serving him rather than by trying to knife one another because they're not better than the rest of the pack. The things that uh, the false view of equality produce include a demand for leveling and at the same time a great deal of snobbishness. People withdraw into their own circles. We are better than they. And as the superior ones, they will have uh, all kinds of balls and parties to raise funds for this or that ostensibly good cause. They are not of the pack. At the same time, it leads to a world where everybody is dressing alike, but as soon as they do, those at the top dress differently because they don't want to be a part of the great equal mob. Mm -hmm. So that there's a tremendous self-hatred that is created by resentment and by equality. And the two feelings go hand in hand. Equality creates resentment towards others who are better than one is, and equality leads to a destructive attitude towards all those who are better than we are. We address that in a book that we discussed at the Easy Chair. I think it was, what, about a year, year and a half ago? What was the book about uh, the intellectuals and the masses, I think was the title? Oh, yes. Something like that. Yes. Um, that book was a very insightful book to demonstrate yes. one of the features that you just mentioned, Rush, how intellectuals have wanted to get rid of the common people. Well, government is trying to mandate equality, which is absurd, because all you have to do is look around, and uh, it's, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. That's right. But it gets votes. And, of course, the... Chief goal of politicians is to stay in office, so uh, they'll offer, offer, offer all sorts of things to to redistribute wealth in order to get in office. How, how long can the people be fooled? A long, long <laughs> time. Yeah. I've seen that for sure. If they don't become Christian, they're going to go on being fooled forever. That's exactly right. Well, so, people live on an animal level that submit to the pack mentality. You know, whether it's a pecking order among wolves or chickens or whatever, they live on an animal level. The media is especially guilty of this very thing of producing resentment. Um, 
I could give examples and I will not, but uh, again and again, this whole idea of fueling resentment uh, is, is demonstrated on television and movies. It's very prominent in our culture. Perhaps no culture has seen these problems more clearly for a longer time going back to the days before Christ than China. But China has never had an answer. Again and again, thinkers in China have analyzed the problem and yet because they have a thoroughgoing relativism, they can make no change. Well, our time is about up. Is there a final statement that any of you would like to make? The only solution is the Christian solution. Yes. That's for certain. And this crisis of civilization created by resentment and hostility, hatred, revenge, envy, and the like will not go away until people are Christianized. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.